This podcast is produced by EnergeticCity.ca, your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To support local news and this podcast, go to EnergeticCity.ca slash join to find out more. Welcome to This Week in the Peace, our new revamped weekly talk show all about current events from Fort St. John and beyond. Uh, later, I'll be speaking with Fort St. John Senior Flyers head coach Craig Faulkner and club president Paul Van Nostrand. We'll touch base on the Flyers season, which came to an end during the first round of playoffs last week. All right, but first, the Saqua Heritage Society and Simon Fraser University announced yesterday the digital repatriation of the Saqua archive to the Dunezza people. To talk a bit about what that means and about some excellent things in store for Saqua coming up in the near future, we're joined now by the Society's Executive Director, Alyssa Curry. Alyssa, welcome to This Week in the Peace. Thank you so much for having me on today. Thanks so much for being here today. So tell us a bit, uh, first of all, uh, just how things have been going in the last year at Seiko. I think it's been about a year since I sat down and talked to you about it, and you, yeah. you've had lots of cool things happening. Absolutely. Exciting things have been happening in the site. Um, the big focus of the last couple of years, and especially this year, is getting the site ready to welcome the public back to mm-hmm. Saqua. Um, we've had a lot of new infrastructure development on the site, some accessibility improvements, and all of the work that we've been doing, a lot of which has been behind the scenes, has been preparing to welcome the public back to this this site that has been a gathering location for 12,000 years. Yeah, and I mean, I haven't been in a, in a while, I'm afraid. So the last time I was there, you know, it, the, the path down to the cave is marked but, you know, it could be a little treacherous. Some of the rocks are slippery and whatnot. I assume some of the accessibility improvements have maybe something to do with getting down to the cave itself. Absolutely. We have installed a, a low mobility trail that goes right down to the cave. Uh, for the listeners that don't know, low mobility is on the spectrum of accessibility. So that means people who, for example, want to come with a stroller. Um, we had some families a few weeks ago come with sleds and be able to pull sleds down when we still had snow and uh, and be able to get down to the cave um, there are benches along the trail that you can stop you can have a rest uh, we've now had uh, three different people uh, making use of wheelchairs able to get all the way down to the cave and back up to the site so that's really incredible and, and part of the overall transformation of the site that really is aimed at making it more accessible for everyone who wants to come. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that can be quite the undertaking because it's not like you can just bulldoze and, and build something because it's you know a sacred site, because you want to keep everything, I suppose, as intact and in, in the original spirit of the place as possible. You have to really think about what you're doing and where we want to build something, but also to make it accessible so that everyone can visit and learn and, and enjoy the space, right? Absolutely. Um, One of the most interesting challenges we've had around accessibility is balancing that need to um, provide access while also remaining respectful of the cultural values of the site, the archaeological material that's present at the site, 
And something that's been really rewarding for me is, is seeing our, our contractors, our accessibility experts. We've been working with Spinal Cord Injury BC extensively, Northern BC Tourism, all of these organizations coming together to support that mission and help us creatively problem solve some of these issues. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about this digital repatriation project that uh, uh, you announced along with Simon Fraser uh, University yesterday. Tell us a bit about that for people who don't know exactly kind of what's happening. Yeah, so the Saqua Archive is held at Simon Fraser University on their Burnaby campus, and that archive represents all of the primary materials that were created during the original SFU excavations at Saqua. So those took place in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And as part of those excavations, of course, um, you know, people recognize that artifacts are, are extracted and cataloged. Um, but there's also a wealth of other contextual information that's produced. So things like photographs, um, log books, field notes, um, maps, slides, all kinds of um, incredible resources that we have been working with SFU to repatriate to Saquon. To repatriate simply means to return to a community. Um, and the digital repatriation and the creation of the Saquad Digital Archive is one very important part of that process. And it's the process of, of digitizing a lot of that material and making it available to the entire public. Um, certainly the Denizah communities are, are really benefiting from this, but it's the entire community and the public as a whole that gets to benefit from this digital repatriation. Mm -hmm. well, That's where I struggle a bit with this. I mean, I, I, I understand the concept of repatriation, but digitally is where I get hung up because it's, it, it is something, but the physical things are still at SFU. So, why why was the choice made to make this a digital repatriation and and what i guess my question is what about it is being repatriated when all the physical items as mm -hmm. far as i know at this moment are still at sfu and will be for the mm -hmm. the near future at least but now but now we've said we've digitally repaid mm -hmm. I, I guess if you can explain more exactly what that means and what went into this process of, I guess, does it mean that the Dunezah people ultimately have control over the archive and the digital use of the archive mm -hmm. uh, rather than SFU? I, that must be part of it. It's a great question. So um, you've touched on something that's really important. The physical archive, the physical materials are still at SFU for now. And we have been working with the BC Archaeology Branch and the Simon Fraser uh, Museum of Anthropology to physically repatriate those materials. But there are a lot of logistics that go into a physical repatriation, things like gaining your repository status with the BC Archaeology Branch. A lot of the infrastructure work that we've done has been to support the physical repatriation. Um, but even with a physical repatriation, you are still limited in your access of who can physically visit your archive to view and, and make use of the material. And the benefits of a digital repatriation are that everyone anywhere can log on to the SFU website and make use of this platform. Quite frankly, the, the society, the Sequa Heritage Society, is still a small nonprofit in you know, northeastern BC, and we're limited by the capacity that we have. And so SFU committing their university resources, their library, for example, their website, um, to be able to host what is 
what I imagine, you know, a huge amount of digital data to make it accessible is really important. And it means that we can make use of that material and, and in turn preserve that material better because you don't necessarily have to visit the physical archive and consult the physical boxes in order to access, for example, over 300 photo slides of those original excavations. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in general, uh, and tell me if I'm wrong, this seems to be a, a fairly significant act of reconciliation on the part of SFU and even just universities in general, where all over Canada, I mean, they have archives and, and, and archaeology and pieces of things that don't belong to them that do belong to, you know, uh, uh, indigenous people around Canada. So uh, did SFU approach the society and say, we'd like to do this? Or was this more of a we'd like you to do this. And they said, we're absolutely on board. And let's, as you kind of alluded to already, let's work to in the future, making this a physical repatriation, even when the time is right, when, when the infrastructure, you know, is in place. Sequa mm-hmm. has been very fortunate in that SFU and particularly uh, Dr. John Driver, who's recently retired from SFU, have been really supportive allies throughout this process. Uh, Archaeology has changed significantly in the last 50 years since those first excavations took place. And, you know, the archaeologists at the time certainly felt that they uh, were doing their work to help preserve and support Indigenous um, cultural heritage. But now um, it's only very recently that archaeology and universities as a whole are actually engaging directly with those indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. So for Saqua, um, this is actually the culmination of over 10 years of, of direct support and collaborative projects that we've worked on with SFU. Um, they helped develop an educational kit that we can take to schools and, and replicas that we can use. So SFU and John Driver in particular deserves a lot of credit for the amount of uh, resources that they have have allocated to um, bolstering the society and ensuring that that material is reflective of uh, the the growing changes in archaeology and the move towards indigenous stewardship of these cultural sites and of the material that is um, extracted from them. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of uh, extracting material, I mean, there's a field school slated for later this year where there may be more material uh, discovered and extracted. Uh, tell us a bit about that and, and how important it is for that to be coming up and sort of, you know, what, what's going to be happening during it. Mm-hmm. So the last academic um, excavation at the site took place in 1991, and two years ago, the society approached uh, UNBC, University of Northern British Columbia, and SFU about beginning new excavations at the site um, under a, a different model than what had previously been done before. Mm-hmm. And we specifically approached UNBC because they already have a field school model led by Dr. Farid Ramtula that is focused on integrating and marrying indigenous traditional knowledge and participants with that academic knowledge. So our field school with UNBC has um, equal participants from the university and our Treaty 8 First Nations communities working together and sharing both their academic and cultural knowledge. And the, the last field school that we did did recover artifacts. We thought that that was a really great success. And um, 
a huge part of the success as well is being able to take that knowledge back into community. So, for example, we took our field school students to Doig Day at Doig River First Nation, and we were able to share it with the grade fours there. Doig River was a, a very gracious host of us and allowing us to in, be involved in that event. And we'll be doing the same thing this year. And it's really about democratizing and making accessible this material that previously was really only available to academics and professional archaeologists. Mm -hmm. Is is it going to be an excavation in like a similar spot just deeper or is it in a different spot kind of on the site that maybe hasn't been excavated or really explored before or is it both? A little bit of both. Um, primarily this year, we will be using the data from last year's geophysical study. So we used um, a variety of technologies, magnetometry and ground penetrating radar to identify areas of higher potential for archaeological discoveries, okay. things like hearth features, which are ancient fireplaces um, and areas where the bedrock is a little deeper, allows for more deposits of material to be left undisturbed. So those are the types of areas that we'll be focusing on this year, um, as well as answering some you know, additional research questions that are brought to us by our community elders. That's a really key change that's happened in archaeology that we've embraced is that the research questions should come from the Indigenous community, not necessarily from the academics. And, you know, our Farid Ramtula at UMBC, uh, Mike Richards from SFU, those are our two directors on that dig, have both been incredibly supportive of that work. And, you know, of course, our, our board would, you know, has put in so much incredible work to make this happen, to get to a point that we can start doing these excavations again. Um, it's really a, a triumph for everyone involved. I'm very fortunate that I've got to come in fairly recently into this picture, um, certainly very recently in the 12,000-year-old history and get to be a part of it. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating stuff, and I can't wait to find out what everyone finds out uh, from the excavation. Um, uh, Alyssa, we're very happy you came here to talk to us today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. You're very welcome. That's Alyssa Curry, the Executive Director of the Sequa Heritage Society. Stick around for Craig Faulkner and Paul Van Nostren of the Fort St. John Senior Flyers in just a moment on This Week in the Peace. Welcome back. You are watching This Week in the Peace, and I'm Jordan Prentice. The Fort St. John Senior Flyers wrapped up the 2023-2024 season last week after losing to the Dawson Creek Senior Canucks in the first round of the North Peace uh, Hockey League playoffs. The season wasn't an easy one for Flyers, who despite their resilient efforts, were unable to secure a win in 18 games played, finishing with a record of 0-16-2. To talk about some of the challenges and highlights of the season, I am now joined by head coach Craig Faulkner and president of the Fort St. John Senior Flyers, Paul Van Nostrand. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Our pleasure. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Thanks, Jordan. So I just want to get this question out of the way here. I don't want to focus on the negative too much. Uh, Paul, this one's for you. Is this the first time the Flyers have finished a season without a win? Well, I haven't looked back in any of the stats, but I'm... In my time in Fort St. John, I believe so. So, Okay. So just kind of moving back to playoffs here, can you guys share your thoughts a little bit about their playoff series against the Canucks? Um, I thought we played very well a couple of games in there. And, and, and later on in the regular season, we, we uh, 
we could have stolen some games is the way I, I termed it. Our goaltenders played very well, and we were playing pretty well, and we could have stolen a couple of games in there, but uh, the stars weren't lined up for us, but um, there was a lot of effort anyway. And so we, we deserved a little better fate, I thought, in the playoffs. And Craig, do you share the same sentiment? as? Yeah, I agree there with what Paul said. I think one of the biggest things when we came after game one, we went into the playoffs uh, in Dawson um, with the ability to hopefully steal game one. Uh, didn't work out that way, but we, our compete was there, and that compete followed up in game two and game three. Uh, we did run into some injury issues where we had four or five guys that weren't able to play in game three and game four. What's our difference makers, right? It's it's harder for a group that's struggling to begin with, and then you get guys that are out of the lineup. Um, but I like to compete in the first three games, and then obviously game four there was a bit of a blowout. But um, for the most part, it showed that our guys that when we compete and when our legs are moving, we have our ability to keep winning. So what do you think was the main contributor to the the challenges this season um i can answer that paul if you want or at least take a shot at it you both you both can okay like to. um one of the things that i look into it so we went into the season as kind of that rebuild remodel um that's a plan anyways um if you look at the analogy of taking it like uh uh, a house under a reno and you're going to remove a bunch of stuff and take it down to studs that's kind of how i envision the season um, starting off and then you kind of get a couple weeks in or maybe a month into the season you realize it's not just down to studs I think you got some foundation issues and so we had to deal with taking it all the way down to the bottom of the foundation which when I say the foundation I mean that's we had 12 new players on the team this year all new coaching staff a brand new leadership group we lost the nuclear of the group there from last year where we had four guys that were in the league for 10 or 12 years right so that foundation was established a long time ago and when you lose that it's you you have to start all over again even from the leadership group the coaching staff um so there's lots of new new pieces um unfortunately we just weren't able to put it together on a timely matter and now we looking back we we know what went wrong and where we can fix a lot of things paul would you like to add to that just my my comment would be that um uh, senior hockey is a is a, a lot different game than many of our newer players have played. And the guys are bigger, stronger, faster, more experienced. And um, many of our guys weren't used to that. So it, it'll take time for them, many of those players to grow into being good senior hockey players. Okay, um, so Craig, last time we spoke was just before playoffs, and uh, one thing you told me that kind of stood out to me was that you guys didn't have the same lineup once throughout mm -hmm. the season. Um, I know that family and work is the number one priority for a lot of your players, and that's totally understandable. Um, do you have a plan as head coach for next season to ensure that there's kind of more consistency in, in your lineup and, and attendance to practice to, to develop that on ice chemistry? Yeah, I think it starts right at the beginning of the season where we, for myself personally, I have to have a bit more accountability, especially when it comes to the team uh, for practices. Uh, beginning of the year, we, I believe we had a few too many guys on the roster, which makes it difficult to create the chemistry, create the bond, get that family atmosphere, where if we can knock it down to around that 18 to 22 players committed to the team, the accountability kind of almost 
withholds itself in the dressing room at that point because it's easier for guys to be accountable when there's less when you have too many guys it's easier for guys to be like oh i'm gonna not show up for monday or wednesday and it's kind of almost forgotten about right where if you can keep the numbers low make sure in the dressing room that guys have to take it seriously obviously yes work and family come first but for the most part if you can't fully commit then it's probably not for you okay and uh, speaking of the roster, do you do you guys expect to have the same roster next year, or will you be losing some players, adding some more? What are your thoughts there? We, um, Craig and I, were just talking about that before we sat down with you. Um, we haven't heard of anybody leaving town for sure, although things change during the summer and people's jobs change and, and their worlds change. So it's. Um, it's always kind of in flux um, from year to year. But uh, when we met uh, earlier this week, it sounded like most of the guys, when we were cleaning out the dressing room, most of the guys are going to be around. So I suspect that it'll be much the same as last year. <clears throat> okay. And let's talk about some positives here. What were some highlights for both of you from the season? Well, for me, all along, I've, I've said um, – I want to see us win as much as anybody, but I'm glad we have a team. We went through uh, a period there where we didn't have a team for three years, and um, so I'm I'm happy that we have a team and uh, a lot of good young guys who are enthusiastic, and uh, so that's I'm pleased with that. Okay. Yeah, I think one of the. Bo- positive things for us is if you look at the season that we had if you include the two exhibition games the four playoff games we really went uh oh 22 and two right it's, it's it's a difficult season it's quite to be quite honest it's heartbreaking it hurts but that being said nobody quit not one guy said enough of this i'm out of here packed the bags and didn't come back type deal so if there's any positive takeaway is we have a group that is willing to stick it out and it should only get better from here um, but there'll be some things that we have to work on and address the beginning of next season. And that's a positive, right? We know what went wrong and where we can improve on. Uh, one of it being right off the get go practices have to be harder. They have to be a little bit more accountable at practice. And that comes right from the coaching staff. Like I have to do a better job of making sure that our practices are high intensity, high flow, and at a good pace. Okay. And on that note, uh, I think if there's one thing that Fort St. John knows about the Flyers, it's that they constantly demonstrate determination and resilience, no matter what the outcome of a game mm-hmm. is. What do you both hope the team takes away from their experience this season and carries into next season? Well, um, being on a on a team that didn't manage to pull off a win is going to have an impact on guys if if they care and our guys care. And so I think uh, that'll translate uh, into, you know, and Craig alluded to uh, um, uh, what practices need to look like. And, and I've attended most practices, and, and we need to do things well in practice or there's no way we're going to do it well in a game. If we can't take or receive passes in practice we'll never do it in a game when there's lots of pressure and that's just a small example so I think guys will take 
I think we'll see a, a different um, um, level of uh, commitment in practice next year. Mm-hmm. Craig, would you like to add to that? Yeah, and I think going into the beginning of next season, already you have to come in with a chip on your shoulder. You have to take it personal that last year was a very tough season for everybody. Um, I know myself that I what I need to work on and what I can be better at, and same with some of the rest of the coaching staff. And the biggest thing is that the players. You, it's a like uh, Paul alluded to. It's a tough league. Like it's it's not rec league. If you want to play rec league, where you can kind of show and show up when you want and try a little bit, it's it's not this. The men's senior hockey league is a challenging league, and it shows where we're playing other teams that are committed and they're playing strong. They're showing up to the beginning of camp in shape. They're not getting into shape of six weeks into the season and they're getting better as the year goes on. And that's what we need to do. Well, I really look forward to seeing what next season has in store for the Flyers. Every time I make it to a game, it's some of the best hockey that I've ever watched. Definitely the most entertaining. So looking forward to that. And I'd like to thank you both for joining me today. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for having us. Thanks, Jordan. No problem. Thanks to our guests, Alyssa Curry, Craig Faulkner, and Paul Van Nostrand for joining us today on This Week in the Peace. You can listen to the show again by checking out the podcast at energeticcity.ca slash podcast. We'll store this in future episodes of the show there as we make them, as well as last week's episode. Look, we're already on episode two. <laughs> also, check out our other locally produced podcasts, Before the Peace and Secret, uh, Secrets of the North as well that's our show for today i'm jordan prentice i'm dub craig be well thanks for listening to this energeticcity.ca podcast energeticcity.ca is your only local and independent news in northeast bc to help keep us independent and to support this podcast go to energeticcity.ca slash join